Anderson. Hits it in the air to right. Back at the wall, and the White Sox win it. Sox win. Welcome back. This is the Feeling Soxy Clint Klaus Show, welcoming you back to another fantastic episode of a huge recap of the sports weekend. Obviously, we had Notre Dame falling to Ohio State. We'll get into that. The White Sox taking two out of three from the Minnesota Twins, a very big series that they were able to win two out of three from. And we will also get into game balls. All right, so let's start with our Chicago White Sox. In the midst of a pennant race, they entered the weekend four games out. I believe it was four games out. There are four games out of first place between the Guardians and the Minnesota Twins coming into town who were ahead of us in the current standings. So obviously going in, the White Sox won two out of three from the Kansas City Royals. They were able to take that series after taking the first after dropping that first series and this series you know obviously you knew the emotions were running high and the also with the fact that the guardians ended up getting swept by the mariners it was a good opportunity for the white Sox to be able to gain some ground in the division so it obviously started off with friday's game and friday's game i i think i might have said in the previous podcast that it's going that was going to be davis martin starting well, he ended up pitching the majority of that game, but they went with a opener. They went with Joe Kelly starting the game, and in typical Joe Kelly fashion, he gave up two runs, but the difference was that this was in the first inning and not in the eighth inning when they're trying to hold down a lead or when the game is tied. So, I mean, if you want to take a look at um, genius game plans, I mean, that was obviously genius. They were like, well, we have Joe Kelly. He's available. He'll give up a couple runs, and well, hopefully he doesn't give up like a gazillion of them. Well, Luckily, he didn't. He only gave up the two runs, and then the White Sox offense struggled for the most part in this game. That was until the fourth inning when the White Sox were able to get a couple of runs on the board. Yasmani Grandal was able to single to right. We'll get into more of him later. And then Josh Harrison took one for the team with the bases loaded to tie the game at two. Obviously, in the eighth inning, it was a bad fielding play by Josh Harrison, who is obviously playing in third base in place of Moncada, who... Could be back as early as this week, but nonetheless, he threw the ball away and unfortunately went into the dugout. Max Kepler then ended up going to second base based on if the ball goes out of play, then the runner automatically advances a base. So they were able to take the lead off of an error, two hits and an error, a Nick Gordon ground out. And then in the bottom of the inning, we mentioned Yasmani Grandal and you know, how he has just been an absolute thorn in the podcast side. Well, this is probably one of the first great things that he did this year. He hit a home run batting right-handed, his first one this year batting right-handed, and it was just able to make it out of the bullpen, out of the outstretched Jake Cave's arm as that tied the game. And then it led to the ninth inning. Oh, if you missed this ninth inning, I mean, I'm, I feel sorry for you because this was a very thrilling ninth inning. The White Sox... After getting one out, we're able to get singles from Romy Gonzalez and Elvis Andrews. And then, with the bases loaded, Jorge Lopez, who was one of the prize additions of the trade deadline for the Twins, he hits Andrew Vaughn up and in. Obviously, Vaughn had some words today. Jorge Lopez, obviously, was being 
with playing for the candy ass Minnesota Twins was going to act like a candy ass. And then the dugouts emptied. Shout out Miguel Cairo. I mean, acting manager. He got in Rocco Baldelli's face, basically telling Rocco that he's a candy ass. Basically telling him, hey, I'm sticking up for my guys. You're not going to throw them up and in. I'll fight you right here and there. And Rocco Baldelli probably would have got laid out because he looks like a candy-ass manager. I mean, I'm sure Twins fans probably think the same thing of their manager. But nonetheless, you think the game's up. So that leaves the bases loaded with one out. And then Jose Abreu comes up. And then they famously had two walk-offs, so he throws it up and in again, and it hits Jose Abreu. I mean, this is right after the bench is cleared. You had Lance Lynn shouting at everybody. I mean, that's a great picture. I mean, you had the gang ready ready to slug out the Minnesota Twins because they, they weren't going to do anything. They were just going to run and cower. I mean, that's that's what candy-ass organizations do like the Minnesota Twins. I mean, it it perfectly explains why they haven't won a playoff series in or a playoff game, actually, in, like, what, 18 years? They're a pathetic organization. So then he goes up and in on Abreu. We think the game is over at that point, but then the Twins obviously challenge it because that's what candy-ass teams do. They challenge the last play of the game just so they have some glimmer of hope, but it only delayed the inevitable. The ball went off of Jorge Lopez. Nick Gordon tried to throw a double play, and Carlos Correa didn't even bother throwing. And that ended that game four to three, a fantastic walk-off winner, a grinded out win. They definitely, they came back twice against the Minnesota T, TNs. We take out the wins and twins. So they're just the Minnesota T's taking out the wins out of the twins in that first game. And then we'll get to the big story of the White Sox weekend. And that is Dylan Cease. As we get into Saturday's game, Saturday's game was phenomenal in terms of what was going on in the sports world, obviously having eyes on both the White Sox and the Notre Dame game. Obviously, I had to keep my eyes focused on whatever game was going on at that current point in time. But the White Sox just came up and just laid their nuts on the Minnesota Tees, just had, just beat their ass in because time and time again, that's just what we do. The Twins don't beat our ass. We beat the snot out of them especially on Saturday when you look at and we'll get to Dylan Cease who was one out away from a no hitter I mean he was just a a true masterpiece a, a true masterpiece by him I mean you can't even say you can't even say anything else I mean when you look at the two twins base runners they were walks very early in the game and he only threw seven strikeouts I think the one thing that I noticed the most out of it is he only threw 103 pitches that whole outing. Like, he went the distance. I think by the fourth inning, he only had, like, 45 pitches through four innings. I mean, the Twins weren't doing nothing on him. They weren't doing anything on him. Zilch. Nada. 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 And obviously, people will say, oh, well, maybe he shouldn't have pitched to a Luis Rise. Fuck that. If you want a true no-hitter, you go after their best hitter. And granted, the, the Minnesota Tees basically gave up midway through this game. They took out two of their best players who probably could have broken up the no-hitter at some point in the game. But, you know, that's what the, the Minnesota Tees do. They they just quit whenever things get tough for them, and then they start crying whenever people are about to do perfection on them. Like, I want to I wanna get into the eighth inning, which because it absolutely drove me nuts. The Twins basically tried to ice still and cease by pitching a position player. The same organization that basically was crying at uh, Urban Mercedes at a home run off of him last year that I think enough people were like, wow, you guys are the 
most candy-ass organization in Major League Baseball. And that's what the Minnesota Tees are. And they got teed off. How about their how about their trade deadline acquisition? Tyler Maley, who's only made four starts for him. Well, he started this game, only pitched two innings, no strikeouts, gave up a three-run homer, three-run ding-dong to Aloy, four batters in, already four-nothing. Gonzo. Nice trade deadline acquisition, Minnesota, you fucking garbage-ass team. And so this leads us to the eighth inning. Also, shout-out Romy Gonzalez. He had his first career home run, a three-run bomb in the fourth inning. And he, I, I also want to say something. Romy has been pretty good for the White Sox for the most part outside of when he comes up late in games and strikes out at three pitches at 100 miles an hour. But that's neither here nor there, but he's been pretty good. I mean, his glove has been very solid. He's had a very solid glove since coming up. I mean, his second base play has been pretty good for the most part. He hasn't had too many really bad plays that have really kind of blown up in his face where he just bobbles a ball. I think he's only had maybe one of those, whereas Josh Harrison, I think, had like three of those in a span of a week, like – Let's be honest here. Romy Gonzalez has been pretty good. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of compare. I don't really know of a good comp for him, but I think he's really played his way onto into playing regularly, especially whenever Mankata comes back next week or at some point this week, actually. You know, Luis Roberts supposed to be back, so he'll probably be back in the lineup playing in center field. But, I mean, for this game against the Minnesota Twins, they didn't even need him. I mean, the Twins basically gave up. After the fourth inning, when Romy Gonzalez hit his three-run homer, he pulls Carlos Correa after two at-bats, and he pulls Max Kepler, who is 8-for-18 career all-time with against still in cease with three home runs and eight RBIs. Like, Rocco Bardelli is just a moron. He basically punted on this game. And then in the eighth inning, he has the audacity to pitch not one, but two position players. And Nick Gordon, I mean, two is... I mean, Nick Gordon was basically left out to dry. He was just thrown out there, just killing time, trying to ice still and cease. That, that's no way. I mean, I don't understand why you can't just use one regular pitcher out of your bullpen when it's only a 7 nothing game. Like, I, I just think that's candy-ass. Like, the Twins are, are candy-ass. We mentioned it throughout the podcast. That will actually be the name of the podcast. The candy-ass Twins lose two out of three. And then they pitch Nick Gordon. Elvis Andrews hits a grand salami against them. I mean, this game was pretty much over, but, I mean, you you talk about you want to face the best with facing Luis Arise, and they were able to do that. I mean, 13 nothing. Yesterday's game, I mean, whatever. Lose 5-1. to one. Carlos Correa hit, hit a home run that barely made it out of the park. Dylan, Dylan Bundy, who I, I don't understand why the White Sox have just had so many troubles against Dylan Bundy throughout his tenure six and zero, all time in his career against the white Sox. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So, cause I, I don't really understand what Dylan Bundy does. Well, I mean, obviously when I look at the quotes, I mean, Carlos Correa was like, it was beautiful all the way around. Great performances by a lot of people that was on Sunday's game. I mean, he, I want to know what he had to say about, uh, the, the two other games that they lost where they were crying because they were getting their fucking doors blown off. But I digress. They the twins are only, are ha- are only happy when they when they're doing something significant, which I mean they haven't done anything significant in probably like thirty years. So that's what can- that's a candy ass organization. So we're gonna move on to a tough series. We have a very tough series. I mean to be able to follow up that performance, taking two out of three from Kansas City, taking two out of three, kind of rectifying a homestand in which it was 
looking very, very bad after they got swept by the Arizona Diamondbacks, who I'm pretty sure just swept the Milwaukee Brewers, too. So I don't know. Maybe that has more to do with the Arizona Diamondbacks being a young, hungry team. But that that doesn't mean anything. We're going to another young, hungry team out west, the Seattle Mariners. The Mariners have been pretty good this year. I mean, the White Sox played them earlier this year. They took two out of three from them, took out Robbie Ray, who they won't be seeing this series. But unfortunately, they will be facing Luis Castillo on Wednesday's game at 310. That's that's going to be a tough one. I mean, even Tuesday's game, Johnny Cueto versus Logan Gilbert. I mean, Logan Gilbert has been really good in his career against the White Sox. That's really going to be a tough matchup. And then today's game, which will be having first pitch in just a little bit under four hours by the time that this podcast gets released. You have Lance Lynn against Marco Gonzalez, a left-hander. Look, um, I'll be honest. I mean, this is this is going to be a top series. I mean, there's no... I mean, it's a tough series, but for the most part, the White Sox have risen to the occasion when they have played the better teams. For the most part this year, I mean, it's not like last year where any time they played a good team, they would just get their doors blown off. I think they played considerably better against the better competition of teams that they have taken on during this during this second half stretch, even though they've had the easy one of the easiest schedules in the second half of the entire season. But, I mean, that's just just facts but and but i mean you you have to take it one game at a time you can't really look at this whole series as a whole and say what what's going to be successful like what would we view as a successful series um don't get swept i'm just gonna say that just don't get swept i'll tell you that right now i mean west coast trips for the white Sox over the years have just been an absolute mess to say the least i mean after this they go into oakland They'll play the Oakland, the Sling and A's next out in Oakland. And I mean, they're in last place. So hopefully, I mean, you could take three out of four from Oakland, but we're not looking ahead to Oakland. We're talking about the Mariners series. I mean, hopefully you can take two out of three. You can, be, you can steal one of those games where you're facing Castillo or Logan Gilbert. Hopefully they can walk away with one of those games. I mean, they performed considerably better. I mean, you just hope that the starting pitching just holds up in those games. I mean, Cueto has been phenomenal this year. I mean, you can't really say anything other than that, that he has just been an absolute godsend. Lance Lynn's been better as of late. I mean, he's been very good. I mean, his legs are starting to get under him. I mean, seeing as how he started the season very late, I mean, we've mentioned it before, and he's probably going to get a game ball, but he is really starting to ramp it up. He's really starting to look like the Lance Lynn of old. Hopefully he continues that against a very good Mariners team that I mentioned at the top of the show, swept the Cleveland Guardians, and was doing us a favor, giving us some room in the division. Now we are only two games out of first place. I think Minnesota's only one game out, but still, I mean, they're not out of it by any stretch. I mean, they're still dangling the carrot in front of us, but I mean, who knows? Maybe the carrot will lead to a division title, but I mean, at this point, you, you can't really make any real, you can't really make any real crazy predictions with this team because I feel like this team just reverts back to old habits at times, but I mean, you kind of just hope that it's um, the reverse of trend, even though I did see this in online earlier that the White Sox actually in the opposite months, in the months after they have a losing month, they have a significantly better winning month. So when you look at throughout the season, April was a losing month, eight and 12. 
May was a winning record, 15 and 12. June, losing record. July, winning record. August, a losing record. So, I mean, are the signs pointing to a winning record in July or September? I mean, it, who knows? I mean, it really, um, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to kind of be the guy to tell you to believe. But, I mean, I, you know, obviously, because I sort of gave up on this team like two weeks ago. But, obviously, right when the, it's like that gift from the Godfather, right when they you think that I'm done, they pull me back in. And that's what they're doing. I mean, they're just dangling the carrot in front of you. But, I mean, it's. Hopefully you can take two out of three from the Mariners because I don't think you're going to sweep the Mariners. That's just a really good ball club, even though we are we are also a pretty decent team. I And we play better against winning teams. But, I mean, the Mariners are no – it's no walk in the park against the Seattle Mariners, particularly going out west. I mean, West Coast trips considerably for the White Sox throughout the past decade haven't been too great. But we're not talking about the past. We're talking about the current. So – Let's see what our boys can do, and maybe maybe by the end of the week we'll be back in first place, but, I mean, we've been saying this for months, so only time will tell. Only time will tell with his White Sox team, so just continue to watch the games, even though you if you don't want to watch the games, go ahead. I mean, I'll watch the games for you, and, let you, and then you can listen to the podcast, and then that's way you will know what happens with these White Sox teams. Now we are going to transition as... We are a Notre Dame football podcast. We are going to get into the deep dive of Saturday's game, which I think for the most part surprised a lot of people, surprised me in particular. Like I I had the over in this game because I did not want to, because I've seen Notre Dame play in a number of these games. Maybe, maybe it's just how they play in bowl games and not the first game of the season. But, I mean, you can't. I have two ways of thinking about this Notre Dame this Notre Dame game on Saturday lost 21 to 10 to Ohio state led 10 to seven at halftime. I mean, I like they were going, getting ready to shock the nation, but unfortunately the second half, the offense just could not get anything going. It, it was tough. I mean, it was really tough watching the concert, very conservative approaches on running the ball in the second half. It, and I also think it also hurt the team in the long haul for this game. Cause they were, they weren't able to get another score and drive going in the second half. They had one where it was considerably close, but it was called back due to Matt, Matt Solorano getting an offensive pass interference call. And, that, and of course, Ohio State scored two touchdowns late to put the Irish away 21-10. to 10. So my one, two ways of thinking. So number one, Notre Dame came away. I came away kind of really impressed with how Notre Dame performed in this game. I thought Notre Dame was going to get killed. I thought they were going to give up 45 points, which is why I bet on the over, and I figured that they would at least put together a couple of scores. I mean, they put together two in the first half and just did nothing in the second half. It was just not – I mean, you really love the performance of the defense. I mean, Marcus Freeman came in with a tremendous game plan, and the moment didn't seem too big for him. Like, they came out and performed on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, when you talk about what Ohio State was going into this year, the hype of – hey, this team's supposed to go to the playoff. I mean, everybody has them a shoe in to be in the national championship game. I mean, I also, a big college football fan, would admit that myself, that they are a very good team. I mean, when you look at the offensive weapons that they have, I mean, it's hard not to kind of gush over them and say, this team was going to come in here and blow out Notre Dame. 
That wasn't the case. Notre Dame came into this game very motivated. They came into this game angry because they're like, hey, we're a pretty damn good football team, too. We're only the fifth-ranked team in the nation. You can't just come in here and say that we are going to lay over and die. And I applaud their effort. I mean, they definitely came in there and punched the Buckeyes right in the mouth to the point where they were starting to get nervous. I know Jackson Smith Najobi was out for the second half. I also believe they lost Trayvon Henderson, so that was an advantage for Notre Dame. On the defensive side of the ball, I mean, the linebackers look good. The DBs, Cam Hart, Clarence Lewis, I think Tariq Blasey got, got hurt late in the game. But Brandon Joseph, his first game at as a transfer from Northwestern, very phenomenal, flying all over the place. He was a former All-American at Northwestern, was a grad transfer to really help out the secondary in the Notre Dame defense that is a very veteran leadership group. And let's get to the offense. I mean, the offense is... It was kind of the main thing that I was concerned about with this Notre Dame offense was how are they going to be able to score against Ohio State? Are they going to be able to put together scoring drives to be able to go toe-to-toe with the Buckeyes? And that answer was clearly answered because Tyler Buckner, I mean, great, first career start in Ohio Stadium, no easy place to start your first career game. And I know Tommy Reese, I was listening to a press conference, like right after they announced Tyler Buckner was a starter, and they said, well, you know, he had that he had that good game in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is a tough environment. Tommy Reese, the Blacksburg, Virginia and Virginia Tech is a completely different animal than Ohio Stadium, the horseshoe. Like, what are you even talking about? Like, you're trying to compare apples to oranges. Like, you're trying to compare cold brew to hot coffee. Like, what are you talking about? West Virginia Tech hasn't been a tough place to play in years. I mean, Old Dominion just went in there and won this past weekend. So I don't want to hear no Blacksburg, Virginia is a tough place to play. You can't compare Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech plays to the horseshoe in in Columbus, Ohio. Like, that's just dumb. That's just dumb analysis. And it kind of goes to show with his, his play calling in the second half. Like, I felt like they played this game not to lose. Like, they played it so conservative that I feel like they didn't even consider throwing the ball on first or second down. Like, it got to the point where it was very predictable, and then the offense just kind of stalled. I don't even think they crossed over the 50-yard line in the second half. I think they might have done it once. But this was a very winnable game that if the offense could have put together at least a couple touchdown drives, they win that game and completely shock the nation, completely shock me. And then this whole podcast is probably starting with Notre Dame shocks the world and beats Ohio State. But the offense was not good. The, the play calling was very conservative. I was very surprised that Chris Tyree did not get the majority of the snaps. Chris Tyree, I thought, was going to be the starting the starting running back for Notre Dame heading into the season. But, I mean, you, and just looking at the box score, you know, he had six carries for 28 yards. He had the most yards, but only six carries, 4.9 yards per carry. Audric Estamine, I thought was very, I thought it was stunning that he actually got more carries than Chris Tyree, who was more explosive coming out of the backfield. Like, that's the type of style he, that that he is. I mean, Buckner, for the most part, 10 of 18, a 54.7 QBR, not really good. Was averaging 9.8 yards per throw, 177 yards. Doesn't really help when your number one receiver is Lorenzo Styles, who only has one catch for 54 yards. Like, it was just a very conservative play-calling approach that I feel like ultimately cost them. I mean, they had 30 carries for 76 yards. That's an average of 2.5 yards a carry. Like, that's not good. That's not good. Like, 
Ohio State, very early in the second half, realized Notre Dame is not going to throw the ball. And they realized that, and they shut down the entire running game. Like, it felt like first down, run for one yard. Second down, run run for one yard. Now it's third and eight, and then Tyler Buckner's going to pass, and now he's scrambling around, and he's going to fall short up fourth down. Like, it felt like there was a lot of offensive possessions that looked exactly just like that. Like, it was just, it was maddening. It was like, what are they doing? Like, this is too much of a conservative approach when you should be trying to go for the jugular. You are in Ohio Stadium. You're not playing Marshall. You're not playing Sisters of the Poor. You are playing one of the best college football programs right now. The one program that has been running the Big Ten for the last decade, two decades. And when was the last time Notre Dame even won in Ohio Stadium? How about 1936? You could have made history. Notre Dame in this game could have changed the narrative. They could have shocked the world and people would have been like, oh my gosh, like we, we should probably keep an eye out for Notre Dame. I mean, they just went into Ohio Stadium. A lot of narratives would change. Like Ohio State's narrative would completely change. People would be like, is this team maybe not as good as we thought we were? I mean, now if you look at Notre Dame, people are now over underestimating Notre Dame. People are saying, is Notre Dame better than what we thought they were? I mean, they could have easily won that game had they put together at least one or two touchdown drives, they really would have put Ohio State out of reach. And then it would have been to a point where we're talking about a completely different podcast here when we are discussing what happened in the game on Saturday night. Like, it was a winnable game that even if you put together one more score and drive and you lost 21-17, I think people would still have the narrative. I mean, you covered the spread. You were 17-point underdogs. Like, that is no, especially when you were the fifth team in the nation that has to be some sort of motivation and a lot of pressure on the team that is the 17-point favorite. All the pressure was on Ohio State in this game, and you could tell that Notre Dame was playing loose. They were playing, I mean, obviously they were playing not to lose, but on the defensive side of the ball, they kept them in that game the entire game up until the end because that defense was getting gassed because the offense was just not putting together offensive drives. And that, at the end, is what cost Notre Dame in this game was conservative offensive approaches from Tommy Reese, which tough. I mean, this is the second game in a row. If you want to go back to the Fiesta bowl last year, where they were up by 21 points and then basically just put to, were struggling to move the ball in the second half. And then it was ended up Oklahoma state coming back. It was some things need to be worked on by offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese. He needs to work on the second half adjustments coming out the second half booming, put together another good scoring drive where you really break your opponents back. And I think that is the one thing that Notre Dame is, has been struggled with in terms of in the early going with Tommy Reese taking over as the full-time play caller. That is something that has to improve as the season goes on. Now, granted, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and BSU would say that Notre Dame was going to be a national championship team. I didn't think they were going to go to the playoff this year. I mean, I thought they were going to lose this game against Ohio state by like 30 points. Like it shows what I know. Like it really goes to show you that you play the game. Like it really doesn't matter what your what is the narrative going in. You go out and play the game and a lot of narratives have changed. Like I think Notre Dame is starting to get a lot of respect I haven't seen the new AP poll because there is one more game uh, later tonight. It's going to be Clemson and Georgia Tech. But I think for the most part, you I think you have to be pleased with Notre Dame's performance on defense. I think Marcus Freeman came in with a 
tremendous game plan. And on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, overall, it was a disappointment. I mean, you you have to be better. I want to see more aggressive approaches on the offensive side of the ball and not this silly conservative, let's run the ball first down, let's run the ball second down for 2.5 yards to carry. As I mentioned, Notre Dame had, in terms of offensive yards, had a combined of 200 and 53 yards. Notre Dame had 253 yards. Ohio State had 395. Third down efficiency, Notre Dame was 3 for 13. 3 for 13 on third downs. You are not going to win a whole lot of games if you're 3 for 13 on third downs. And, I mean, no turnovers. They they had the time of possession. I think they were dominating it. But then, at the mo- then you get to a point where, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you just become too predictable. And I think that's what happened. I mean, Ohio State started to put everybody in the box, realizing Notre Dame is coming in with an experienced quarterback that they don't want to put the ball in their hands, which I think if they would have tried to go for more shots down the field, I think it would have put them in a better position to win this game. And I think that is the number one thing that Tommy Reese probably needs to work on going forward in this season. Now, granted, I still think it's a 10-2 and team. I still think 10 wins, 9 wins is probably the lowest, but I now feel a lot better about them playing Clemson, playing USC later in the year, which in the previous podcast, in which we did the season preview, I predicted them to go 10-2 and two or 9-3. and three. I still think that's a real possibility, and that doesn't change my thoughts. Even after one game, it slightly changes them. It, it adjusts my expectations slightly because now I think this Notre Dame team is pretty good. I mean, especially if they run the table and go 11-1, and one, they will definitely, especially if Ohio State goes undefeated the rest of the way that we expect them to go, then Notre Dame is going to be in the thick of things in the college football playoff again. They'll probably be on the outside looking in again, especially if they finish 11-1. and one. But if they beat Clemson, if they beat USC, if those teams are still in the talk, in the conversation for the playoff, then I don't see how you can't you can't really deny them. But we're not going to get too ahead of ourselves with Notre Dame. We will get into another preview later in the week where they will play the Marshall Thundering Herd coming into town. We are Marshall meets We Are Notre Dame, as that'll be on Saturday. All right, and I'm going to wrap up the show with Game Balls. So let's get to some game balls. My first game ball, as I went in depth a lot with Notre Dame's defense, Notre Dame's, the whole Notre Dame defensive side of the ball gets a game ball. I mean, you completely just came out and absolutely balled. Only gave up the 21 points. 14 of those points were late because the offense just completely went stagnant. But Notre Dame's defense, you have to tip your hat to them because they came in there with a game plan of these guys are not going to throw the ball all over the all over us and they were able to stop Ohio State on third down I mean shout out to that secondary I mean Brandon Joseph Houston Houston Griffith who was who was going to leave and then came back and then you also have Tarek Blassie Clarence Jones Cam Hart I know I'm missing some guys out of that Notre Dame secondary but I mean a game ball all around of the Notre Dame defense I mean you have to be completely pleased with what you saw they kept them in that game throughout like you Cannot, they made that game very winnable. So the Notre Dame defense, the whole defensive unit gets a game ball. Over to the White Sox. Dylan Cease is getting a game ball. I mean, it's obvious that he's going to get a game ball. I mean, he had a very masterful performance. His first career complete game was one out away from a no-hitter and probably should have gotten it. 
even though the Twins tried to ice him. I mean, once again, the Twins, candy-ass organization. Dylan Cease shoved the ball down their fucking throats so bad that they had to pull their two best players because, oh, we're scared. Yeah, the Twins are scared of the White Sox. Just don't, just remember that. They're scared of us. They're scared of us. They're scared of Dylan Cease, just like how the Guardians were. I mean, they had that weather machine flood the field, which miraculously the field became play, which miraculously the field became playable for the second half of the Mariners game later. But for that game where they were going to face Dylan Cease, oh, the field, the field is unplayable. Well, that's what you get, Guardians. Guardians are about as much of a candy ass team as the Twins. So back to Dylan Cease. I mean, yeah, seven strikeouts, almost got the no hitter. I mean, phenomenal performance, just an absolute masterpiece. And then I want to give another game ball to Miguel Cairo for trying to fight Rocco Baldelli. I mean, Rocco Baldelli is a candy ass manager and rock and Miguel Cairo, who the White Sox have been four and two in his absence of Tony La Russa. Again, Tony, we hope that you are doing well, but you, you can, you could stay home. You could stay home for the rest of the year. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you right now. You can, you can just stay home, but Miguel Cairo has been very good. I mean, obviously, he was going to fight Rocco Baldelli on the field, which I absolutely loved because Rocco Baldelli's a candy ass. So we're going to give Miguel Cairo a game ball. Yasmani Grandal, I'll give you a game ball. You had two RBIs in Friday's game, including the game-tying home run. I mean, yes, that's right. I'm giving Yasmani Grandal a game ball. I mean, it's the least I can do since I've been ragging on the guy the entire year. But when he comes up clutch and he has been good, I will give him the recognition. So that's... Phil and Soxie, the Clint Klaus show for this week. Tune in later this week as we will go into in-depth as it is going to be Chicago Bears season. We will go more in-depth with their season preview, which will be out later this week. We will obviously preview Notre Dame's upcoming game against Marshall. We will have a recap of the White Sox Mariners series. Hopefully we can have a winning series there. I mean, that's all we can hope for and give you a Preview taking you into the weekend where they will have a four-game set with the Oakland Athletics in Oakland, the house of horrors. Thank you guys for listening to the Feeling Soxy Clint Klaus Show. And as always, let's go White Sox, Notre Dame football, and bear down. Thank you. Love you guys. See you next week. See you later. 